We saw every Jewish nightmare come true this week. Israel is reeling from the worst week in its history. Atrocities Hamas perpetrated are exposed for the world to see, and the outpouring of support for Israel as well. This is Unholy. I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. It's Unholy, two Jews on the news. Uh, as you say, Yonit, the worst week in Israel's history. And one of those dark, uh, baleful weeks in Jewish history. I mean, a week that will be remembered, that takes its place alongside some of the bleakest memories uh, and events in our history. Uh, I mean, when you and I spoke at the weekend for our emergency update episode, I mean, it was very clear. I think, you know, listeners responded to it. They could hear in, in our voices the kind of shock. I think we were both very numb from it. The the odd thing is, with the days that have passed, if anything, it's got worse, actually. I thought it we, we, we would be in a different place by now and we would be able to be, you know, some distance or whatever. In some ways, the opposite. That as each morning, I found myself, each morning when I wake up, I've had that thing where there's a split second and then you remember what's just happened and you're reminded that it is actually real uh, and that we are living through this. And that's for me at some distance. You're right there. It will be that to a greater, much greater magnitude. It's worse than when we talked the first time because what happened since Sunday was that the pictures and the reports of the atrocities are coming uh, out and they are unimaginable but human beings actually imagined them and perpetrated them. If you can call them human beings, they are unspeakable. And yet we have to speak about uh, what happened. You know, you can never become immune to this. This is what we now know that has been done to young children, to uh, their parents, to young women, to uh, the elderly. This is something, there's nothing worse than this on on the face of the, the earth. And, um, you know, yeah. Israel... And, and uh, and I think it's probable, given what I've been told and people are speaking to, that we don't actually know the full extent of this. I mean, in other words, that even, and I think you on the news that you anchor have been in some ways sparing uh, about the details. You can tell us more about that. But I know that some newspapers and media organizations have had to make decisions about what they say. Even within that, there is, as I understand it, there are details that are too grisly to be talked about and uh, somebody i spoke to today just said to me essentially whatever is the worst thing you can imagine that is what happened and uh i suspect in the coming days more will emerge mm. uh just as more you know b bodies are recovered and they tell their own story so uh you know the gravity of it sinking in the horror of it um sinking in and this whole other element of course which is there isn't particularly sort of survivor testimony in the way that you might imagine, but instead it's the families, particularly of those taken hostage, that are speaking. I think this is, in some ways, the next wave of pain is when you begin to realize who is there, the, you know, the elderly, the very, very young, and just imagining their fate in Gaza. It's, um, this is a sort of ongoing, uh, pain. It's not like mm -hmm. it sort of recedes and that you can begin healing because there are new waves of it with each new revelation. It, it was shocking that uh, an hour or so ago, uh, an Israeli father whose daughter died told CNN that he was actually, and this is just to show you how grim everything is, he was actually happy, he said, when they told me that she was dead and not abducted because I could only imagine what she 
would be going through had she been in the hands of Hamas. As you said, Jonathan, Israeli television, we should say, uh, tried very hard to not to show some restraint and not broadcast all the graphic images, not only not to horrify or alarm a public that is already quite uh, alarmed, but also because some of the news wasn't corroborated in the first couple of days, but the prime minister himself and then the president of the United States, they they corroborated it and they gave all of the details. And it is indeed the sum of of, of all our horrors, really. Um, you know, I, I talked last week, in our last episode, which is an emergency episode, there's one thing that uh, I think of since I said to you that the difference between these events and the Yom Kippur War is that we weren't under existential threat now. We're not now under existential threat, but but now it feels like the existential threat is, is on our border and obviously has crossed our border. So, so it's a very deep thing that is going through Israeli psyche, right? Imagining, every Israeli is imagining what that what happened in the South can happen to them in their house, to their family. Um, and it is a very difficult thing to carry, obviously, besides everything else. Yes. And um, there was a moment uh, on, I think, the Wednesday where there were reports that it was then uh, essentially a false alarm of talk of a big attack uh, on in the north from Hezbollah in Lebanon. And those sort of existential, that's the word we keep coming back to, those existential fears return then, partly because as we've been saying on here, um, Hezbollah has even greater, much greater firepower than even Hamas do in the south. And, uh, you know, that immediate threat passed, but it just gave an inkling of uh, the degree of anxiety there is. And look, I think people, anybody, it's not everybody, obviously, but most Jews around the world will know people, they'll have family, they'll have friends in Israel, they are getting those messages in which people say, it's you know my ex-wife's brother it's my friend it's my daughter's friend it's somebody put it to me it's the children of my friends and the friends of my children you know one way or another whatever permutation again obviously more truer still in israel but whether you are in london or paris or buenos aires or in new york you're getting those messages as well people making contact with family in israel perhaps even those they hadn't sort of spoken to for quite a while this is one of these uh, experiences, I think, that is in, in enveloping the whole Jewish people right now. Mm. I was at a vigil at a synagogue on Wednesday night, one of the most moving occasions I've ever experienced, I would say, where one of the speakers, member of the community whose mother had been taken hostage in uh, one of the kibbutzim. This is how it is. We're all going through this sort of collectively. We should, though, bring people sort of up to date with what has happened uh, in the last day, hours, days that we didn't know when we mm-hmm. when we talked in that sort of emergency moment at the weekend. So, first of all, Israel has a new emergency uh, government uh, to conduct the war, very limited war cabinet of three people and two observers who can join the conversation. The cabinet is made made up of uh, Netanyahu, the prime minister, uh, Gallant, the defense minister, and Benny Gantz, uh, minister and 
basically taking his whole party, the National Unity Party, into uh, Netanyahu's coalition for uh, these war uh, moments. This is very calming for Israelis in two ways. One, Gantz and the other person that he's bringing in, Gadi Eisenkot, the former chief of staff of the Israeli military, really people with a whole lot of experience in running these kinds of uh, events, although this is, of course, unprecedented, but they were both uh, chiefs of staff. And finally, the feeling that Israelis have is people with experience and knowledge uh, can run this. By the way, we should say that this is tacitly an admission by Netanyahu that he doesn't trust his own government to fight this war. And of course, that Gantz himself taking this responsibility, which is politically very dangerous for him if things uh, go wrong. But it does send a message to Israelis that, uh, you know, this country is united, right? And that um, maybe they were completely divided over the judicial overhaul. But now, uh, maybe we can say that Hamas's greatest achievement was to bring Israelis together. By the way, we should note that one of the demands that Gantz made was that all legislation is uh, to be freezed until uh, after the war. If anyone had bandwidth for that still, then that is something that is going on. Um, politically, that is important. And for the, the country, it's important. Yeah. And when we say all legislation, we mean and include the judicial overhaul, which divided the country so starkly uh, and polarized opinion and was really the dominant thing that we thought the dominant uh, story of 2023, you and I would have said for eight months of this year, and in still nine months of this year, and instead, it's uh, now suddenly receded and on the back burner. I think the um, uh, presence of Gantz is fascinating, because one of the big shocks that this uh, sent through the country and beyond was the notion of the Israeli army and the Israeli military and its capacity in the sense that uh, somebody put it to me this week there has always been in Israeli society a kind of unspoken bargain and put this you know it can be put very starkly which is you give us your children and we will give you safety and security and protection meaning it's mm -hmm. a conscript army every 18 year old goes into it and in return the Israel Defense Force is trusted to provide security, and that bedrock trust is one of, has been one of the sort of animating features of the whole society. And it was that that was shaken, in part, on Saturday. And we've had those mm -hmm. part of the stories that have been coming out all week is how long people had to wait uh, hours and hours and hours and asking themselves and sending messages to their family: Where is the army? Where are the soldiers? even some crazy stories, heroic stories in the papers about people's ex-service you know, personnel relatives, in one case a father, coming to rescue them. I wonder if there will be some sense it's reassuring to have somebody from the army from before. In other words, when ben, does Benny Gantz's presence secure, uh, re and Gaddy Eisenkot as well reassure people because it, people might think, well, that was when the army definitely was functional and working, when those guys were around. And if they're back round the table, is there is that part of the psychology of reassurance that, you know, that's the IDF as was rather than the current fear that a sort of depleted or diminished IDF of today? First of all, I think it's important to say the IDF is not diminished or depleted. I mean, obviously, you're right about the fact that for the the first couple of hours, up on the operational level, there was a colossal failure, and we'll talk about why. Uh, but the soldiers that did uh, arrive and and in larger numbers as the hours you know drew on and on fought, fought heroically. I think what is important here is that Netanyahu's own government has heads of parties that some of them weren't in the military at all, and some of them had curtailed military service. These are two men with 
decades of experience. Both were chiefs of staff. One of them was also the ministry, Minister of Defense. So it reassures Israelis immensely that the people around the table making these decisions are now people who have the experience of war. Yeah. Um, no, that will definitely uh, have a big uh, calming effect. The other big sort of story we should obviously talk about is the action that Israel has taken militarily a military response hitting targets in Gaza. I don't think anyone would be surprised by that. But also this statement from the Defence Minister Yoav Gallant about a state of siege being imposed in, on Gaza, whereby no food or fuel will be allowed in, creating effectively a seal around Gaza. As we speak, there's forecast that the electricity will run out pretty soon. And saying, in fact, that, you know, these people, human animals, he called them, you know, that they would be not sort of spared. I think this will be a difference from inside and outside. That is already making news around the world. Um, it's not displaced what happened. The, you know, front pages of newspapers around the world are still full of the atrocities of last weekend. But building up in terms of media attention is the impact the response will be having and is having on Gaza, 300,000 uh, plus Gazans on the move, being told, you know, you need to evacuate. My guess is that that is not, is barely on the radar screen of Israelis, even if in terms of the information war, the sort of media war that's coming or already started, that is getting ever more attention outside Israel. So let's say a few things. One, uh, Israel is still warning the uh, population of Gaza that they are about to attack. We should also say that Hamas, a terror organization, has told people not to leave their homes, that the Israelis are lying. And what you understand from putting one and one together is that Hamas wants the effect of a massacre. Um, that is one thing to say. Gaza has another border, we should remind everyone. It has another border with uh, everything that has to do with humanitarian uh, help for the population of uh, Gaza. Uh, Egypt, for now, has said that it would not accept refugees. I need to pause on this because I, I think that we should say a few things. This is not another skirmish between Israel and Gaza. This is a moment that will determine if we can live here or not. Because if this happened once, the 2,000 terrorists crossed the border and murdered children in front of their parents, it can happen again unless something is done. It's important to remember this. Now, when the United States decided to destroy ISIS, it devastated Mosul and Raqqa. Is the world a safer place because ISIS is now uh, defeated? Yes. Did innocent people pay with their lives tragically? Yes. There is no time limit on the United States on this action. There's always somehow a stopwatch when it comes to Israel. So all of this needs to be taken into consideration when people talk about proportional response. Israel needs to act with proportional response. What does that mean exactly, that we need to send 3,000 people to murder civilians? What do you mean when you say proportional response? How is any country in the world to deal with this kind of monstrosity? These are difficult questions. Yeah, I mean, your mention of ISIS is relevant. It takes, maybe we'll hear a bit of this, because it takes us to the speech that Joe Biden 
May this week, a very striking address from the White House. He had uh, his vice president, Kamala Harris, at one side, his secretary of state, Tony Blinken, at the other. Tony Blinken then went on to travel to Israel, as we know. But he, he spoke with tremendous sort of animation and conviction. A lot of people said in some ways the most forceful you know, remarks of his presidency. But he did very directly make the comparison with ISIS, which many people are taking as a sort of cue, a signal that essentially you, Israel, can do to Hamas what we, the United States and our, you know, and allies, did to ISIS. I mean, let's just get a flavor of, of Joe Biden's speech now. The brutality of Hamas, these bloodthirstiness brings to mind the worst, the worst rampages of ISIS. This is terrorism. We must be crystal clear. We stand with Israel. We stand with Israel. And we will make sure Israel has what it needs to take care of its citizens, defend itself, and respond to this attack. And we stand ready to move in additional assets as needed. Let me say again to any country, any organization, anyone thinking of taking advantage of this situation, I have one word. Don't. Don't. Our hearts may be broken, but our resolve is clear. I mean, that's uh, the whole tone of that. those remarks from Biden did, to me, sound like essentially a green light. Do what you've got to do to Hamas, he was saying to Israel. And I think the, the, the mention of ISIS was saying that is the model. I suppose the difference is that ISIS was, you know, the ISIS commanders, the, you know, fighters were foreign in many cases. Gaza and Hamas are a different situation because they are just from there. There's no... There's no sort of easy displacing of them in quite the way that you might have, you know, the scattering of ISIS that happened. I'm not quite sure how that would work in this case, even if, you know, you thought that was a good idea, even if Israel decided, yeah, let's do what Americans did to ISIS. I'm just not sure the analogy is there, despite the fact that Joe Biden clearly thought it was. Obviously, it's closer to our border than ISIS was to the United States. And this is, I'm not pretending this isn't an utterly complicated question, obviously. I mean, Hamas took over Gaza in 2007 after Israel dismantled all its settlements uh, and disengaged. And ever since, it has declared war on Israel. Actually, in the last two years, Israel allowed for 20,000, maybe more, uh, Gazans to come into Israel to work. The attempt and the illusion we were under, all of us were under, was that Hamas would prefer the lives and 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 the well-being of its own citizens and not terror. That facade has exploded. Obviously, it's a more complicated situation. And, and obviously, Israel doesn't want to hurt the, the civilian population. But the question in front of everyone, and, and obviously more very much so in front of Israeli uh, decision makers, what to do and how to prevent this, especially how to prevent this from happening again. I want to say something about uh, uh, Joe Biden, who I think on Tuesday gave what is the most pro-Israeli speech any American president has ever uh, uh, given, uh, at least in my lifetime. You can feel his rage and his anger and his empathy. And unlike another former American president, didn't only talk about himself. But I think that for Israelis, again, you have to understand, who have been going through the worst week in living memory and probably since existence, the moment he spoke, you could hear a collective 
breathing in. People were breathing again after a few horrendous dark days. They felt like their most important ally was was with them. It, it's it's incredibly important. Yeah. I mean, you were referring there to Donald Trump who just talked about how Bibi had let him down or whatever. But Joe Biden, absolutely solid. The uh, the argument about, uh, I just think on the information, as I said, this sort of argument that's going to come in the coming days is one of those ones. And we've talked about so many different versions of this on the podcast over the, since we've been doing it, you and me. One of those things where it just depends where you, how the same object can look completely different if you're inside Israel or out. Because you referred there, and I think this is absolutely how Israelis see it, to the disengagement. And as far as Israel is concerned, I think they think we got out, we did everything that was asked of us, we uprooted the settlements. That was a traumatic event for those settlers. There are no boots on the ground there. It's not occupied anymore. West Bank, maybe, but not Gaza. Outside, the emphasis is on the fact that movement inside and out is controlled by Israel and therefore the phrase that people use about it in all that, and this, you, we're going to get more and more of this in the coming days is, you know, an open air prison. Where else are the people of Gaza meant to go? It's just one of these cases where the perception of the situation from Israel and absolutely backed up by Joe Biden will be not shared universally outside. And so I think the question I, I wonder about is for how long the kind of agony and pain that Israel witnessed this week, that which most of the world and certainly world leaders were publicly very sympathetic to, how long that that feeling lasts before it's displaced in terms of attention by what will be newer, and that will be the headlines and images coming out of Gaza. I don't expect people in Israel to see it that way, not for one minute. But outside, I think that is going to be the coming argument back and forth. Whatever you think of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, whatever you think of Israel, whatever you have been thinking over the past years or decades. Now, I want to be clear. I don't mean you, Jonathan, when I say you. I know you're saying other people are going to be saying this. When someone comes in to people's homes, kills them, in the way that we know they have been killed. There is one way to relate to this. When you are a country that is surrounded by neighbors who all want to do this to its citizens, you have to think, what can you do to prevent this from happening again? There is no nation on earth that would agree to this situation in which babies are murdered in front of their parents, in which parents are murdered in front of their children. This is not something we can live with. You know, the people of the kibbutzim on the border who have been butchered, these are peaceniks, Jonathan. These are people who their whole lives voted left and were demonized by the Israeli right for being leftists. And they say this now. These are, this, these are the people you targeted. And they're saying, we have been demonized and we have been called traitors, but we can't continue to live here if they continue to live there. Again, I thankfully am not a policymaker, 
But you cannot not see, if you are not on the right side of history, and we know this, we know that there have been sickening images of people supporting Hamas before Israel picked up one plane in the sky. We know this, right? If you support what happened on Saturday, then you are a walking moral vacuum. And that is one thing to hold on to before having any other discussion that we have been going into. 2007, Hamas taking over Gaza, declaring war, Egypt also having its border closed. That's a part of the story as well that we shouldn't forget. Israelis do not want innocent civilians in Gaza to die. They don't want Israelis to die either. We have to realize that something has fundamentally changed. And I realize there are people who won't see it, and I will return again to my uh, thinking that, that when it comes to Israel, it's always a stopwatch. It's always how, how long can you continue to do this until the world will see it. Yeah, stop. I mean, that's very forceful. I don't think um, the point, by the way, about the kibbutzim and the people on there has come through loud and clear in the stories that we've heard. That's exactly who it was. It was the people who... You know, many of them were involved directly crossing into Gaza, involved in, you know, um, person-to-person efforts, cooperation. I was hearing yesterday of uh, somebody who was an Arabic teacher because she thought, her, you know, her Israeli pupils needed to learn Arabic to be able to speak with their neighbours. She is now a hostage. Um, I mean, that's, it is very much those people who were targeted. But when you say... We cannot live here if they, you know... They, I don't mean the Palestinians. They, I mean Hamas. Do we have any question about who they are, who these people are, who pretended to have a nice, friendly face to get money from Qatar and then decided to murder Israelis? We always thought that they... We knew what their charter says. It's the annihilation of Israel. But we thought that they would prefer the the, the well-being of their own people. Well, they don't. And um, the... ISIS-ification of Hamas, in terms of how Hamas will now be seen, I think is one of the big shifts that will come through uh, from this episode, from this week, is that I think there will, there are still people, and you mentioned them, perhaps we should get onto this around the world, who reacted on Saturday in truly appalling ways, supporting what happened. They have an image in their mind of Hamas as some kind of Che Guevara freedom fighter outfit, and they were saying today's a day to celebrate various student organizations, various sort of leftists on social media, etc. Not understanding what I think the events of the last few days have either revealed or confirmed which is that actually this is a uh, an ISIS style in uh, organization perhaps actually that almost puts it too mildly uh, that this was an act of as one observer put it uh, to me of murderous ethnic cleansing and therefore isn't to be seen as a kind of even in the realm of of, of you know what pol- political terror organizations are all we're used to them doing which is killing and and you know setting off bombs the nature of the killing, the type of the atrocities that they performed were so heinous and so sadistic, the sadism, the cruelty of it, that actually there's been this whole media argument about the whether the word terrorism is apt. To me, it seems like that's almost you know, underestimating what this is, because if it is Rwanda-style um, butchery, then terrorism in a way understates it. So I think those people who have thinking, you know, calling this decolonization or a liberation struggle, 
will, I hope, be um, ashamed of their words, and those words will be turning to ash in their mouth because they have seen actually what Hamas is and what it really represents. I don't know what one then does with that um, because I do think that the message of coexistence and peace and making an accommodation that people on the left, like in some ways the people on those kibbutzim and the people like them, have been making, as you say, for years and decades. I, you know, I don't know how you continue to make that case when the organised, you know, representative is dominant in Gaza, um, is exposed as being of this complexion. I think it just changes things. I don't know in which direction or how or how it resolves itself or what happens, but it changes things. Again, I think the intensity with which you and your fellow Israelis and probably most Jews around the world feel that is at the moment uh, shared by many people, many governments and things outside Israel. I think we, you know, Joe Biden articulated it. All I'm offering to you is a thought and a question, which is once the response in Gaza is a week old or two weeks old or three weeks old, you know, I nod to your stopwatch there, will the that feeling still be shared? You will feel it. Israelis will feel it. Most Jews around the world will feel it. I'm not sure it's going to be an infinite resource, um, an infinite commodity in the, in the, if this goes on into weeks and months. And when it's all finished, people will still be left on both sides of this boundary. Somehow something will have to be worked out. And I don't know now in the light of the nature of these crimes, not just the numbers, the nature of them the sadistic nature of them i don't i can't myself see how that what the next steps are so um you know everything has changed and uh, in ways that made a already perilous situation even harder well what we should say in the meantime is that western leaders are issuing a joint statement stating their steadfast and united support of Israel. We saw the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak saying, Ami Sayel Chai. This is, I think, in their minds, the minds of the Western leaders, quite clearly a different scale, uh, what we have seen here, uh, contrary to anything we've seen before. Yeah, the and it's one of those moments where the you know, governmental reaction across the world tells one story. And then, and I would actually say probably almost certainly the popular reaction to most public opinion, what's left isolated is in some ways what is also most visible, because it makes it for sort of shocking footage and for shocking news stories. And that is the reaction from a small but very noisy, hard left reaction who have been in a very different place. And I think, for example, people might have seen footage out of Sydney, where there was a pro-Hamas demonstration last weekend where they were chanting, F the Jews, gas the Jews, gas the Jews, at a demonstration. There was a demonstration in London on Saturday outside the Israel Embassy, where thousands were there letting off fireworks, chanting slogans, flying flags, etc. Plenty on social media as well, saying, um, you know, supporting the resistance. Uh, this is something to celebrate. One speaker at a rally in Brighton said, it was so beautiful and inspiring to see. I want to clarify something about the timing of this. These, you know, are not protests or demonstrations against Israel's response that you might think that the usual pattern of pro-Palestinian protesters 
protesting at Israel taking action with, you know, military attacks on sites in Gaza or anything like that. These were statements made or demonstrations staged in the immediate aftermath of the massacres and pogroms against Jewish Israelis. At that stage, Israel hadn't done anything. When the organizers uh, of the march that happened in London sent out the message saying, let's gather, you know, uh, similarly, those people who are saying, let's celebrate. This is, um, I think, a big jolt for diaspora Jews in this sense. It's become into the language now, this phrase from Dara Horn and her book, People Love Dead Jews. This was the idea that people are all very sympathetic when Jews are victims and when they're dead, in the, mo in the obvious case being the Holocaust. But the moment Israel defends itself and fights back, that's when people protest. Now we discover that for a small but vocal minority on the hard left who would call themselves pro-Palestinian, they don't even love dead Jews. They actually will be condemning of and denouncing Israelis even when they are dying and being killed. And that, I think, has been a great – shock may not be the right word – um, but it's 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 a great jolt and very, very, I mean, dispiriting is a, a mild way of putting it. For diaspora Jewish communities to see there are people who respond not to Israel in, uh, inflicting pain, but suffering great pain and want to stand outside the Israel embassy, in effect taunting those people inside. It's been very, very disturbing, also disturbing. Uh, is the notion that now when Israel is vulnerable, again, not when it is, because this was before, not when it is hitting back, that Jewish pupils at one London school told not to wear their uniforms with Jewish symbols on the outside of the uniform, uh, graffiti in Golders Green, the most Jewish neighbourhood in London, and um, a, a general sort of heightened state of alert in the UK where I am, anti-Semitic attacks for the relevant period have quadrupled. Uh, compared to the comparable period in a normal year. So this is a sense of trepidation and nervousness that is going alongside the feeling of solidarity. So Jews are not only just getting, you know, their phone buzzing in their pocket with messages from friends and relatives in Israel, they are also on alert, worried about their kids at Jewish schools. Uh, I heard of from one a colleague of her five-year-old in reception class having the evacuation drill told in the siren gets off, you have to run into your classroom and hide. The quietest class will win a prize. This is five-year-olds in London. This is the, ang the angst. I don't pretend it matches the angst in Israel, but there is an, an, a, a ripple effect here uh, mm -hmm. that has come about. And it's come about partly because of a, uh, of a reaction around the world utterly at odds with the support from government leaders, but a reaction around the world from, again, I say a small but vocal uh, minority that is pretty repellent. And, and we are watching this very closely from Israel. We should also mention that the president of the United States talked about beefing up security in Jewish institutions. This is happening to all of us uh, in a different volume, maybe, but it is happening uh, to all of us. We should mention when we're talking about these 
groups and what they're saying, there have also been a story at uh, Harvard, a statement uh, by the Amnesty Charter Organization saying Israel is responsible for all the violence. I mean, this statement is beyond contempt. Everybody uh, slammed it, but the Harvard administration. It's interesting that people who were signatories on this, um, if I believe correctly, are now having their job offers uh, rescinded. And I think we should also mention, and this Israelis are following very closely, the media organizations that are not using the term terrorism. Uh, John Simpson, who's an estimable journalist, said that using it means that you're taking sides. Here's a question. Aren't you not taking sides if you're not using it? So I think that this is important. There are a lot of, it seems there are people out there who are more concerned with the terrorists' feelings and how to call them uh, than what they actually uh, perpetrated. So um, that is something that uh, we have been noticing as well. Yeah, I mean, just on the Harvard thing, what was so stunning to me is it wasn't just one group. You know, there's always going to be one sort of mm-hmm. crank group. It was 34 different student organizations at Harvard mm-hmm. said said that. And um, the, in their words, quote, the apartheid regime is the only one to blame. They could not call out the murder of children and civilians. It's it's a it's a gr- an example of a great moral failure. I think I know what's going on with this. I think it is people who think somehow if you show even the slightest human empathy for Israelis, that somehow means you're not pro-Palestinian enough, uh, as opposed to thinking, and I think AOC addressed this when she called out the anti-Semitism that she said she'd uh, seen in a New York rally on this subject. This is the same sort of area. She said, you know, you can have both these things in your hearts and minds at the same time. You can uh, be appalled by the suffering that's been inflicted on Israelis, even as you hold whatever position you hold on Palestinian rights. As for the the ongoing BBC discussion, I think this is in play. A group of lawyers have written to the BBC, so pointing out that just in terms of you know how the law views Hamas, it would just be a statement of fact. They say to use the word terrorist. The BBC says, "Well, look, we don't do it in any conflict because that's immediately taking sides, and we just avoid the word." I think it's a problem for them. And the big problem for them is that they absolutely do use it when the victims of terrorism are British. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's the g- glaring hole in their argument that when the Manchester Arena bombing happened, 22 uh, young people killed in a terrible terror incident, it was immediately branded a terrorist incident. And it leaves a huge hole in that argument uh, if you are saying we have a policy of not branding anything terrorist and you understand why because the BBC is a world broadcaster and there's all kinds of different conflicts it reports on. If you've got this glaring contradiction, some would even call it hypocrisy, which is when the victims are your own domestic audience in the UK, well then, yeah, sure, then it counts as terrorism. Um, I wonder how long it will hold that policy. Um, Again, I do think it speaks to this disconnect. I think people had in their minds that Hamas was one kind of organisation. Think the Irish Republican Army or ETA for the Basques and so on. And after what's happened this week, and the more detail of it will confirm this, actually it's more analogous to the likes of ISIS or even those kind of mobs that committed, for example, the genocide in Rwanda. That, That maybe becomes the more apt category to put Hamas in. And I think maybe we're seeing a lag where people, uh, you know, valorize them in one way or saw them anyway in one way and have this week seen uh, something which uh, is a graver and perhaps more realistic picture. Yes, I um, I think that we should also discuss or maybe go back to the 7th of October because what 
we now know, uh, we know a little bit more about what happened on that day because there are two main questions, right, sort of hovering over this terrible, terrible tragedy and disaster. One is, where was the intelligence uh, and that colossal failure? And the other was the operational failure. I mean, why did it take so long, uh, hours, uh, under which some of the towns in Israel were effectively under, uh, conquered by Hamas? Why did it take so long for uh, uh, soldiers to arrive and for policemen to arrive? And, and we know a little bit more about what was done here. It was an extremely cleverly planned operation with rockets and mortars and all of that was a diversion because the initial aim was to basically knock out the military's ability to respond quickly. So what they did first and foremost was they attacked the Gaza division uh, headquarters, which then hindered all of the IDF's response. So the Air Force, all of the other ground forces came in late because their primary eyes on Gaza, on the Gaza border, have been blinded. They did come, and they, they came as quickly as they could, but they came in smaller numbers because they didn't understand the scale of, of what was going on. But we should say, and we said this before and we'll say it again, the soldiers who came and the police force and the civilians themselves fought heroically. You have stories coming out of these, you know, really heroes standing in front of these these terrorists who came to, to slaughter and kill civilians and, and really doing their best. The, the, the first line of, of defense, a lot of them are, are now dead. We really lost our best and our brightest. And we should also say that the intelligence question, really, we're not trying to, to at all. I think it's important to say there's a difference here in Israel, Jonathan, between the questions targeted at the military and the intelligence that failed. We're not dealing a lot with that now because the military is fighting war. And, and a lot of questions about how the government failed. That is more in the in the in the questions, the beginning of polls, the first polls coming out saying, you know, a lot of Israelis do blame the government. But there have been news, especially about AP, about the uh, intelligence uh, minister in Egypt, Abbas Kamel, warning Israel uh, in some way or another that the uh, Gazans are, are planning, that the Hamas is planning something. There's a big question. Who knew what they knew, when they knew all of this is echoing 50 years ago? And the question Again, the military intelligence from Egypt coming in. Obviously, then it was a longer period, but these will be definitely very, very difficult questions for the for the day after. Just the very idea that the uh, sort of division headquarters could be vulnerable to an attack from Hamas like that, not really sufficiently protected. I, I mean, I've been struck by those people who I, who are not, in my mind, hugely political and certainly not massively kind of historically anti-Netanyahu, the anger that has come through in messages I've been getting. And, and one point that was particularly made is this notion that resource and energy was diverted from protecting the South in order to protect, uh, for example, settlers in the West Bank. There is this story about Huara, where, as I understand it, initially 1,200 and then 800 extra soldiers were redeployed in order to cover the construction of a sukkah in Huara, a very provocative act, given, as again, we reported on the podcast at the time, the events that happened in Huara, where Settlers went on a rampage there, then a very kind of in-your-face gesture of constructing a sukkah. In the people doing that wanted IDF protection, and there was a kind of complacency about the southern border as if uh, the threat is no longer real. It's quiescent. We've got that covered in Gaza, and therefore we can put people in the West Bank. And that was um, 
an allocation of resources that will now be under close scrutiny. And I, I think I completely agree with you. The scrutiny must be and will be, I think, on the political echelon who made those decisions rather than operationally on the military. I wouldn't, by the way, rule out that if you're, uh, the, the impression you're getting from those early polls is right, that Netanyahu will blame everyone but himself. He will say this was the left and the protesters. He will then say, I'm sure it's the army. He will not. Now feels quite quaint and old-fashioned, our conversation about 1973. I don't think he will put his hands up and say, yeah, this was our political failure. The buck stops with us, with me. This is on me. I can't see that happening. I don't think that's part of the uh, political complexion. Yeah, I don't think that's part of the man. Uh, but again, you know, I, I can see that this is perhaps the, an argument that is coming rather than being played out right now. I want to say something uh, about the allocation of forces. Yes, there were a lot of forces in the West Bank, mainly because Israel was concerned. There's a lot of terror coming out of the West Bank into Israel and into the settlements. Israel was concerned and, and tense about what was going on there. So that was the decision. Definitely not enough. And we know this forces in the South because the, the Israel and the military and the government, they trusted this a border that was built, $3 billion it cost, and it thought that it would be impenetrable. Well, it appears that you can penetrate it. And that was, I think, one of the questions. I think there are a lot of questions to be targeted uh, and to be asked of the military intelligence and of the Shin Bet, how they had this blind spot, because what they saw uh, in, in front of their eyes were exercises by the border, but they thought the exercises were a show of force, Hamas, uh, trying to, to show Israel and to pressure Israel. They didn't realize... Again, this echoes the Yom Kippur War. You have the intelligence, but you don't interpret it in the right way. They didn't realize these were actual exercises for an actual attack. Um, so I think there are a lot of questions for the military intelligence, and not only for the government, but they're targeting the government right now also because of its very delayed response to assist these people after this happened and, and during the uh, operation itself. I would want to say something, if I may, about the Israeli public about this country. Um, I mean, we're fractious and we're argumentative and infuriating and, and loud and exasperating. This is just about this conversation, what you felt about me. But when we are <laughs> faced with our back to the wall and when we are threatened, we come together in a way that says, don't mess with us. People are mobilizing and volunteering without being called out. People are hosting refugees for southern Israel. Hotels are opening uh, their doors. People are preparing food for soldiers. I mean, you had three retired generals in their 60s driving up when they heard the news, driving down, sorry, south, when they heard the news, just putting on their uniform, taking a weapon, and 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 trying to help, right? We mentioned one of those stories, Noam Tibon, the father of Amir Tibon. There were others, Israel Ziv and Yair Golan, just going. I mean, this is who we are. And I assume anyone listening to this uh, hour uh, might come out a bit dispirited. We are facing our, our, our darkest days. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. But we... You know, we were shocked, we were helpless, we're getting back to ourselves, and we're Jews, we know the drill, right? We bury our dead and we mourn and we carry on, and we are going to be changed forever by this, and we do need all the help we can get, but we're as tough as hell, and we're not going anywhere. And I think that's also important to say after we've said everything else. I don't think anyone's in doubt about the toughness after listening to this hour. I think they've got that message loud and clear. I thought we were going to mention as well, um, if we're talking about heroes, one heroine. I, I want you to tell the story of this uh, Rachel, um, but I thought we might lead into it by reminding 
our audience of the biblical story of Yael, who in the Bible takes the, lets into her tent a military commander who she lulls. He wants water, she gives him milk. And while he is asleep, she puts an end to this hostile military commander in quite a lurid way. Why don't you tell us the story? Of, no, not exactly. Uh, I'll take, it, does, it is similar in some ways. Uh, but this is a story of a woman called Rachel Edri in uh, Ofakim. What happened is that uh, uh, terrorists uh, uh, entered her home, took her hostage, her and her husband. And in some way, she managed for hours and hours in the story, right, to you know, lull them. She was feeding them. She was giving them coffee and cakes. She did this for hours with these people, somehow managing to stay alive. Her and her husband and her son, who is part of the police force, knew the layout of the house when he came to rescue her with the rest of the police force. He knew there was a skylight in the bathroom and he entered from there and he saved his parents. But this is about after many, many hours. And this woman has become this sort of hero of, of Israel. There are a lot of these kinds of stories of people who somehow manage to escape a terrible fate. I loved the detail that she said to the uh, captors in the house at one point, you look tired, you look hungry, you look like you can, you need to eat something. I mean, the idea of the sort of Jewish mother routine being a secret weapon, which in the end saved her because it, it, it bought enough time and hours, as you say, for her son to rescue her. A latter day Yael, uh, Rachel Edry. It's a wonderful story. You have said about those other individuals you mentioned who, you know, took up uniform and took up arms. I do feel, I think I said it in our emergency podcast, they, there are going to be so many stories to come out. And in a way, we'll be telling those uh, over and hearing them for years and years to come. There is so much about this day, October the 7th, 2023, which will live on, as we've been saying, in Israeli history, certainly, but in Jewish history. We've done a lot of talking, you and me, uh, for this last hour. We, uh, it is time both of us thought that we want to hear your voices, those of you who are listening to Unholy. We thought it would be good if you told us uh, how you're seeing things, what questions you have, what thoughts you're having. And we have a mechanism that we have devised um, for us to do this. We're going to do a special episode. It will be next week. Um, and Yoni, you can uh, say how exactly it's going to work. Right. So as as you said, Jonathan, we kind of want to expand the circle of this conversation. We want to hear from Israelis. We want to hear from uh, um, people outside Israel and their thoughts and their and their questions. Um, and and the way to do that, quite simple. You go to www.speakpipe. That's s p e a k p i p e dot com slash unholy. So www.speakpipe.com slash unholy. We will also write that URL URL in our show notes. You record your message and we will, as you said, have an extra episode next week uh, in which we will hear your, your thoughts and try and respond to them. Yeah. So we will quite literally hear your voices because you'll give us a little, what is it, about up to 90 seconds of your voice through the speak pipe. Talk into the speak pipe and we will hear you. Uh, we'll put those together. We hope to come back to you with a, and it will be another special episode early on into next week. Um, we obviously hope there is only good news that we are thinking entirely, I think, about those hostages. Let's hope there is some good news between now and Tuesday and certainly no more uh, bleak news. We've had more than enough of that that we can take, I think. 
we will see you at that next episode and uh and i'll see you then too yoni i hope it all is better and safer where you are we will say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer. Our heart goes out to her this week, to Omer Prima, to Rom Attic. A special thanks to Lior Friedman. And we shall see each other next week, Jonathan. Hopefully some good news to report. That would be good. See you then, Yoni. Yoni.